I'm just thrilled to be back at Asbury Seminary. I'm thrilled to be anywhere, to be honest, but I'm especially thrilled to be here. It's one of the first meetings I've gotten to preach at where we're all together, and it's also special to me because I was raised Methodist. So I want to invite you to keep that Methodist fire that we had in worship. You can get a little rowdy up in here. You know, we got the fire on the cross in the Methodist world, right? So, uh, I also, you know, I started reading after I, you know, gave my life to Jesus. I started reading about John Wesley and saw what a wild man he was, right? And, you know, he, he uh, said, if I, ha- if I have more than 10 pounds when I die, let every man call me a liar and a thief because I've betrayed the gospel and the poor. He had this radical love for the poor. He had this radical love for Jesus that uh, fueled his passion to stand against injustice. So I... um I love John Wesley. I, I was talking to some of the Methodist bishops, and I said, I guess one of the questions uh, is if Wesley was alive today, would he recognize his church? Because sometimes we forget who we are. So I've been invited today to talk about this idea of resurrecting church, and it seems like an important time to reimagine who we are in the world. I, you know, when I, when I fell in love with Jesus— I had this radical transformation where I said yes to Jesus and came to the altar and uh, got got the born again thing going for me, right? And then I I saw a pattern, though, that my friend Tony Campolo says, sometimes we see ourselves, we, we come to the altar singing just as I am, and then we leave just as we were, and we keep living just like we always have. You know, that it doesn't necessarily transform our whole lives, that we just become believers and we still don't know what it means to be disciples. Because I started reading the things that Jesus said, maybe like you, and I, 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 it, it started messing with me, right? I mean, I was like on a track to make some money up in here. You know, I was going to uh, have a real job and things. And, and I, 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 was, uh, I was prom king. It was a small town, you know, but I... I I saw Jesus saying, if you want to be the greatest, become the least. And I started wondering, why am I working so hard to be the greatest? You know, I I heard a pastor say, if we find ourselves climbing the ladder of upward mobility and status and success, we better be careful. Or else on our way up, we might pass Jesus on his way down. That The whole story of Jesus is about a God who leaves the comfort of heaven right, to join the suffering here on earth. Uh, uh, the, the Savior comes to us, not just in any way, but comes to us as a brown-skinned, Palestinian, Jewish refugee born in the middle of a genocide. That changes things, doesn't it, you know? I mean, I, I saw the Hallmark Jesus, and I, I heard that old quote that said, uh, uh, God created us in God's image, and we decided to return the favor. You know, so if we aren't careful, we recreate Jesus in our image and we worship all the things that we love about ourselves. And I think one of the big obstacles to Christ is a version of American nationalism that's masquerading itself as Christianity, but it doesn't look like Jesus, right? It doesn't sound like Jesus. We've kind of forgotten who we are. You know, in my community in Philly that... uh Dr. Kenny was talking about a little bit. We, we get a lot of donations. So when we get donations, you know, there's, there's some things that you don't just want to dive into before you check them out a little bit. You know, like donated dairy, for instance. Uh, 
you know, you need to, you, it needs to pass the sniff test. You know what the sniff test is, right? It, it, you need, before you just guzzle that stuff, you need to just sniff it a little bit, right? And I think that the same thing is true of some of the versions of Christianity. Uh, uh, before we dive all into it, we might want to make sure it smells like Jesus, right? We, want, we might want to make sure that it passes the sniff test. And when we look at Jesus and the Beatitudes right here, Jesus is blessing the people that this world has cursed. Jesus is putting the spotlight on the people that this world has swept away, right? Blessed are the poor, the meek, the merciful. Uh, those are the people that are so often crushed by our policies and by our world, right? So I, I look at this Jesus, and it challenges me. I... I uh, I ended up going to Philadelphia because I wanted, I was leaning into Jesus, right? Madly in love with Jesus. But I also, uh, you know, began to realize that the church was very good at talking about life after death, but not as good at talking about life before death, right? We're promising a hurting world. There's life after death, and a lot of people going, is there life before death, right? Doesn't this gospel have anything to say to the brokenness of the world that we're living in right now? And I'm convinced that Jesus didn't just come to prepare us to die, but to teach us how to live, right? That to seek first the kingdom of God uh, is not just about escaping this world. It's about transforming this world. It's not just about going to heaven when we die, but bringing heaven to earth while we live. Can I get a witness? I'm going to need y'all to shake it up just a little, all right? I know you're six feet apart, but I, I, I think that we... We, we, we so often, you know, I mean, I want to say I'm excited about the afterlife. I believe in heaven and hell. I, like I, I, we will party like there's no tomorrow and there won't be. But in the end, this whole thing is about the kingdom of God coming. So I, I, you know, I wanted to study the Bible. I like how Carl Bart said, we need to read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, Right. Uh, or the Twitter feed, right? We need to, we need to read the, the, the Bible in one hand, and we need to stay connected to the world so that our faith doesn't just become a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore a hurting world. So while I was in college, um, I was studying sociology. I was studying the Bible, and uh, as, as some of you know, our, we had a crisis in Philadelphia uh, back in, this is back in the 1900s. This is 1995, right? A group of homeless families had nowhere to go. The fastest growing homeless population in the U.S. is women and children. These families had nowhere to go, and so they uh, saw all of the abandoned buildings in North Philly. Ironically, we've got more abandoned houses than there are homeless folks. We've got over 20,000 abandoned buildings. And so these, these families saw this old abandoned church, this old Catholic sanctuary, and they said, this isn't just any building. This is a holy space. And they they moved into it and started living there. And uh, sadly, the response of the Catholic Church was, you have 48 hours to get out. You're trespassing. If you're not out within two days, you could be arrested for trespassing on the church's property. But these families, you know, they, they were courageous, and they held a press conference, and they said, we mean no disrespect to the Catholic officials, but we've talked to the real owner of this building. 
<laughs> the Lord Almighty. And God said we can stay. God is with us in the struggle. We have nowhere to go. And they hung a banner on the front of the building that said, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Uh, you know, that, that was where I sort of had my second baptism, right? And I connected my faith to the hurting world we live in. And it's also where we caught our dream for what it looks like to be the church, right? Ironically, in sort of the, the ruins of this old abandoned Catholic building in North Philly is where we started reading about the early church in the book of Acts and how it says that they shared everything they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. They held everything with open hands. They loved one another. And it says there were no needy persons among them because of the way they shared, right? We, we started our little community out of that. We, we moved into a row, pulled our money together, moved into a little row house, row house together. We've been building a little village. We got a dozen little properties now and community gardens and murals and all sorts of things we're doing during the pandemic, delivering bags to seniors, things like that. And, and yet I, I think as we, as we leaned in to the gospel, we began to see that we are called to compassion. Uh, and, 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 and we need the works of compassion right now, especially in the middle of this pandemic, right? But we're also called to justice, right? That when we're in relationship to the people who are being smashed by this world, uh, it causes us to care about the things that are holding them down, right? So I love how Dr. Martin Luther King, he said, we're all called to be the good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch on the road to Jericho. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho, right? We've got to reimagine the world. We've got to uh, do something about what's squashing our our brothers and sisters, and so that's taken a lot of different forms for us over the years, but I, I take a lot of cues from Dr. King, because Dr. King, when he, when he thinks about what it means to be the church, he said, uh, the church is not meant to be the servant of the state or the master of the state. The church is to be the conscience of the state. We're, we're to wake people up with a, their hearts with love and compassion, right? We're to, we're to be the conscience of our nation. So in Philly, we began to see some injustices. You know, we, our, our, our brothers and sisters on the street, they were being arrested for not having a place to sleep. Literally, we had ordinances passed that made it illegal to sleep in public parks. Uh, it, laws that one, one law made it illegal to give food out to the homeless. And uh, boy, we, we decided we need to challenge those laws, right? So we uh, started having public picnics, which we brought our guitars and we considered it a worship service to start with. You know, we're worshiping Jesus. And then we uh, had communion, which was pushing the envelope a little bit. But the cops were like, I'm not going to arrest them during communion. You know, I mean, this is sort of holy. So then we would bring in some pizzas, you know, and we were uh, eventually arrested in the middle of those uh, worship services and we were taken to jail and handcuffed. This is how I learned a little lesson about our faith as we seek to be a conscience. It means we collide with some of those principalities and powers, right? But Jesus said, don't worry. When they drag you to court, I'll give you the words to say. And, and, and the Spirit gave us the words, right? We, we, we went to, to, to trial, and we decided we'd just have one of our homeless friends represent us in court. So his name was Alfonso, and he was smooth, you know? And so we all knew him as Fonz because, he, he, you know, he just smooth talker. And so I, I had a shirt on when we went to trial that said, Jesus was homeless. And the judge said, Jesus was homeless. I didn't know that. 
And I said, yeah, your honor, in the scriptures it says foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. And Jesus said, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was homeless. And the judge goes, you guys might stand a chance. And uh, we, we, as we went to trial, Fonzo stood up and he said, your honor, on behalf of the group, I'd like to say we believe these laws are evil and wrong. And we rest our case. <laughs> and the district attorney was not feeling it. I mean, she was trying to throw us in jail. She wanted us to have thousands of dollars worth of fines, and this was a kicker. She wanted us to have hours and hours of court-sanctioned, mandatory community service. <laughs> no, not that. You know, but so we, we fought our case, and we won. You know, the judge interrupted, interrupted the whole court, and he said, listen, what's in question isn't whether or not these people broke the law. It's clear to me that they've been breaking the law. What's in question are the laws that we're passing in this city that are hurting some of our most marginalized people. He said, these guys are not criminals. They're freedom fighters, and I find them all not guilty on every charge. And, uh, yeah, it was a good day. And then he said, and how can I get one of those T-shirts? <laughs> I sent him one. I did. But he reminds us, right, that if it weren't for people who broke the unjust laws, we wouldn't have the freedom that we have. We would, uh, the Underground Railroad, the Boston Tea Party. I mean, our, we have a history of holy mischief. And as John, as, as John Lewis says, good trouble, right? I don't know where we get the notion that Christians are just meant to be good, law-abiding citizens. Like we're to be holy disruptors, right? We're to be troublemakers. We're to uh, challenge the status quo. I mean, look at at the patterns of the kingdom of God. The mighty will be cast from their throne. The lowly will be lifted. The hungry will be filled. The rich will be sent away empty. That's not Karl Marx. That's the gospel of Luke. Come on, somebody, right? Like It's flipping the world upside down. The last are first. The first are last. It's why Dr. King, you know, at one point, he was accused of being maladjusted, and he embraced the word. And he said, you're darn right I'm maladjusted because we live in a world that has become way too adjusted to injustice. We have become way too adjusted to racism. We've become way too adjusted between the inequity between the rich and the poor. We need some holy maladjusted people in the world right now. And that's what the church is meant to be, right? We are meant to be people who do not conform to the patterns of this world, but are, who are transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? We're to have a new imagination. We are not to conform to the world, as my brother Stanley Hauerwas said, the church is meant to be like air fresheners in the bathroom, right? We're to leave off the fragrance of Jesus. We're to leave off the smell of God's love in the world. That's who we're meant to be. And we are disruptors of the status quo. We're blessing the people that other people are cursing, right? You look at the Beatitudes. And Jesus is blessing those who have been crushed. What does that mean right now, though, right? For us, what does that mean right now? I think part of what's at stake in the, the kind of awakening around racial justice, right, is our ability to affirm what 400 years of history has denied, right? For 400 years, we've said that black folks are not fully 
equal to white folks. We've actually considered them three-fifths human. We've sold them on street corners as property. We've ripped them from their families and brought them here as slaves. We've said in the Dred Scott case that they don't have any rights that white people have to acknowledge. And so now, just to simply say black lives matter is to affirm what that history has has squashed, right? It's not to say white lives don't matter. It's not to say black lives matter more. It's to say that you are made in the image of God every much as I am. You are a child of God, and you matter to God, and you matter to me, right? This, there's something to be said about the particularity of God's love, especially in affirming those people that the world has crushed, right? It's, it's a, I think today, you know, some people, I was on a march and we had Black Lives Matter uh, to God on our sign. And, and someone saw, one of our signs said, all life is precious. And they went, yes. 20 feet later, they saw a sign that said, Black, Black Lives Matter to God. And they put their thumb down. No. And he said, white lives matter more. That's what they said. Right? This, this white supremacy is it's in us, right? It's a principality and power. I think if Jesus was to stand up and say, blessed are the poor, somebody would say, well, well, God loves everybody. You know, like, God loves rich people too, right? Yes, God loves everybody, but we're to stand alongside those who have been crushed. And we're to say specifically to those who everything points that they don't matter, that they do matter to God, right? I think of a, there's a comedian, I think it was Michael Shea that, said, uh, if my wife comes up to me and says, baby, do you love me? I don't look back at her and say, honey, I love everybody. <laughs> right? we, we, we've got to be able to proclaim it. And, and until we can emphatically say black lives matter, we don't believe that all lives matter, right? We're affirming what history has squashed. So I think there's so much at stake right now in our country. I think uh, so much is... You know, we're, as we're thinking about the, what it means to be the people of God, of all people, we should be the ones who are fearless. We follow an executed and risen Savior who stared death in the face and said to those who are killing him, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I mean, Jesus absorbed all the violence of the world and all of our hatred and sin on the cross, and he triumphed over it with love with forgiveness, with an empty tomb. That's the Savior that we follow. It should shape our entire imagination, shouldn't it? That we, we see now that I think uh, so much of our, our, our imagination is being shaped by fear, fear of other people, right? We hear about immigrants and refugees as as if they're folks that we all need to fear and how conditioned we are to fear them, right? Like I, I saw this great study by the Cato Institute and they, they show how unreasonable and ungrounded our fears are. And they listed a dozen things that are more likely to kill you than a refugee or immigrant. And swing sets was on that list, right? Uh, lightning, a roller coaster was on that list. One of the things more likely to kill you than an immigrant or refugee was a vending machine falling on you. But nobody's walking around coat machines like, look out, right? Because we're being conditioned to fear. And yet as a people of God, as a church of God, we say, no, love casteth out fear, right? Love and fear are counter forces. 
they cannot exist in the same space. They're like opposing magnets, right? Love and fear. I'm convinced that the enemy of love, the opposite of love, isn't always hate. Sometimes it's fear. And right now we're, we're faced with a question, right? What does it look like to imagine a country that is driven more by love than by fear? What if love was shaping our policies? What if we were thinking about immigrants as Jesus talked of them? Uh, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me, right? Uh, uh, the Hebrew scripture says when we welcome the foreigner, we should welcome them as if they were our own flesh and blood. The New Testament says that when we welcome the foreigner, we might be entertaining angels unawares. This is holy work, right? And so when kids are being separated from their families, it breaks the heart of God. It should break our heart, right? This idea, I think, of uh, patriotism and America first and some of these things, are, they're defined by our worldly identity, right? And that's why the call of Jesus to be born again is so radical, right? Jesus says everybody loves their own people. You're to love bigger than that. So I, I remember a, a Mother Teresa said, sometimes our biggest problem is that the circle we put around our family is just too small. Come on, right? The circle we put around our family is too small. We limit our love to biology. We uh, confine our love by national borders. But God wants us to love bigger than that. I remember I went down, been down on the border a number of times to just listen and to meet with folks in the refugee camps. And um, there was one time I'll never forget, though, there's a group of Christians that organize worship services on the border, right? And so they have folks on the U.S. side that meet at the wall, and they're met by folks on the Mexico side, and they sing each other hymns across the wall to remind themselves that they are brothers and sisters, that that wall cannot confine the love of God. And so they said one week it got real rowdy, and they felt like they needed to serve each other communion. And one of the sisters said, so we just had to take that bread and throw it up over the wall. And we served each other communion. And as I look at that, it's that, that kind of love that says, uh, no, we're going to love as big as God loves. And God's love calls us to, if someone is hurting on the other side of a wall, it's as tragic as if it was our own flesh and blood, our own mother or father, because that's what it means to be born again, right? I, I, I think that this idea that we're to love that big is a radical one. That's why this is when we think about what it means to be the church. We're to have this kind of peculiar imagination. You know, they were accused, the early Christians were accused of incest. Did you know that? <laughs> because uh, those looking in, so they call each other brothers and sisters, everybody. But they're not all related, you know? They're like, it's kind of this incest thing going on, I think, in Tertullian said, no, 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 you don't get it. We, we don't call ourselves uh, brother and sister because of the flesh, but because of what the Spirit is doing. And we share everything in common except our spouses. <laughs> That's what Tertullian said. Let me correct you just a little bit there, right? Uh, but they were called 
cannibals because they had this weird practice of eating the, the body and drinking the blood of Jesus that was all about uh, our own uh, ecclesial imagination, right? That we are becoming what we eat, that we are uh, being uh, transformed by the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper. We're becoming the people of God in the world. And they also had this uh, radical political imagination, right? They were called enemies of the state. Come on, somebody. They were called enemies of the state. In Acts 17, as you know, it says, these people have caused trouble all over the world. And now these Christians are coming here. They're defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one named Jesus. That when the Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not. We've got a Savior, and his name is not Caesar. Our hope today, this is the strange thing about election season, right? The biggest challenge is like, to misplace our hope, right? And to believe that our hope is in this person or this party, that they're going to change the world. And, and yet we, we know better, don't we? That, that our hope is in Christ alone. That Jesus is our, our hope isn't in the donkey of the Democrats or the elephant of the GOP. Our hope is in the Lamb of God. Our hope is in Jesus, not the left or the right, but centered in Jesus. That's where our hope lies. And so as people of Jesus, I think we have a different posture on election year. You know, we're not looking for a savior. We found the savior. But I will say that I am looking to do damage control. I'm looking to do a little harm reduction, right? I'm looking to harness the principalities and powers that are hurting our brothers and sisters. So my question is not who's going to save the world, but who's going to hurt it just a little less, right? And I think we have an opportunity to, to uh, use our voice on election day, but we also got a chance to use our voice every single day. We don't limit our vote to one day every four years to seek first the kingdom of God is to seek it every single day so we vote every day we vote for the poor we vote for the immigrants we vote for Breonna Taylor we vote for those who cannot speak for themselves we vote for the victims of violence we vote for the families separated on our border and we vote against hatred we vote against racism we vote for those Jesus blessed that this world is crushing amen and we do it not because we're we're partisan or something but because we love Jesus and Jesus calls us to do everything we can to protect those whose lives are being crushed we're to use every tool in the toolbox so I hope that you will vote for love but I hope that you won't limit your votes to one day that we will proclaim right now that Jesus is our Savior our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness all other ground is sinking sand can I get a witness? There's a lot of sinking sand now. And so we need to say, no, I stand on the solid rock of Jesus. And I stand with those people this world is crushing. So as we pray today, I want to invite you just to renew our commitment to say Jesus is Lord. And to say we want to be your people in the world. Oh God, we want to we want to challenge the principalities and powers. We want to disrupt the patterns of this world that are out of sync with what you're doing. 
We want to seek that kingdom where the last are first and the first are last, where the peacemakers are blessed. Thank you, Jesus, for this community here at Asbury, for this group of people who are seeking to realign their entire lives around your life, death, and resurrection. Make us your church. Shape us into your holy counterculture, your community of love that we might shine in the darkness, that we might leave off the fragrance of love amongst the funk. Thank you, Jesus. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.